In a world filled with movies, comedies, dramas, thrillers, and action-packed adventures, only one podcast dives deep into the magnificent titles found on HBO Max, and only one man can host such a show. Me! Well, listen up, you Baldwin's Bettys and you stoners over there on that grassy knoll. It's me, Matt Rogers, the host of the HBO Max Movie Club. And this is yet another episode of the HBO Max Movie Club. I don't think I've ever been so excited for an episode of this podcast because today we're talking about truly my favorite film. I watch the film Clueless, today's subject, roughly once a month. And I find something new every single time. It enriches my life every single time. Is there a better movie? I would say, as if... You know, that's just one of the many popular lines from the film. Sort of a trend-setting film, right? We're going to get into it. Before I dive too deeply into Clueless, I did want to mention a movie that's currently streaming on the HBO Max platform, a brand new movie. It is called King Richard. Now, I got to see King Richard at an early screening, and this is one that's really going to be worth your time, okay? This is the story of Richard Williams, who is the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Famously, he was their coach. And it's the story of how they made it from where they started in Compton to where they ended up at, you know, the history books. Okay? Greatest athletes of all time. I mean, it would be hard to debate. You're going to want to stream this one. It's streaming for a limited time on HBO Max, and it's in theaters now. I think it's going to be a major Oscar contender. I don't know if there's a way Will Smith loses the Oscar, to be honest. There is a scene in this film that really is just, I mean, after a very long career, he is overdue for some hardware. I don't know that Oscar voters are going to be able to turn this one away. So if you love great acting, if you love great movies, you're going to love King Richard. Also, Anjanou Ellis, who plays Oracine Price, the mother of the Williams sisters, is incredible in this film. I think she's headed for a supporting actress nomination if I had anything to say about it. And the girls who play the Williams sisters are fantastic as well. I just don't want to say too much, but I do want to say this is a good one. It's going to be what you want to stream. Okay? So... Now, back to our topic at hand, the film Clueless. If you live under an absolute rock and don't know about this film, let me tell you about it. It was released on July 19th, 1995, written and directed by Amy Heckerling, who was well-known at that time for her film Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So this is loosely based on Jane Austen's 1815 novel Emma and stars Alicia Silverstone, Stacey Dash, Brittany Murphy, Paul Rudd, Donald Faison, and just a bunch of actors that really got their start in this film and would go on to later become big old stars. I mean, the performances all around are amazing. It's, uh, you know, you could describe it as a coming-of-age teen comedy film, and the plot centers on Cher Horowitz, who's played by Alicia Silverstone. She's a beautiful, popular, and rich high school student who befriends a new student named Ty Frazier, who's played by Brittany Murphy, and decides to give her a makeover. That is just one of the many plot lines that go down in the film. It's really very Beverly Hills slice of life. It's also a social comedy meets romantic comedy. I just can't say enough about how much this film is doing and how easily it seems to do it all. It's just so funny. There's a joke in every line, it seems. I'm really excited to talk about this with my guest, It was filmed in California over a 40-day schedule, and Amy Heckerling actually studied real Beverly Hills high school students to understand how real teens in the 90s talked, and so she could learn appropriate slang terms. 
Um, and you'll see if you watch the movie or if you're a fan of this movie, how strongly the influence over the rest of America this film was in terms of language, in terms of how the characters relate to each other. The film grossed $56.1 million in the United States, and it received positive reviews from critics. It's now considered to be one of the best teen films of all time, and it has developed a cult following with a continuing legacy. Okay, people, this is one of those movies. It was followed by a spinoff, a television sitcom, a series of books, and you might even see a remake one of these days. You know they've tried. So we sort of have an event here happening today because this is truly, and when I think about Clueless, which is my favorite movie, I think about it it as high culture meeting low culture. And that's sort of what's happening right now in this podcasting space because we have my guest who I would describe as more refined than me. You know me now on this podcast, you know that I'm trash, and this film actually, I think, is where we're going to meet quite successfully. When I went to go book my guest, I thought, who's the opposite of a virgin who can't drive? So we have a whore who drives quite well on this podcast. Um, You know him as the co-host of Keep It, which is, I mean, truly needs no introduction. He's also a writer for Jimmy Kimmel Live, and you've even seen him on camera. Some people got it. Everyone, please welcome to the HBO Max Movie Club, Louis Rattel. Hi, babe. It's so rare that in an introduction I would be called both refined and a whore. But you know what? That's what you give. If the whore's shoe fits, you know. <laughs> I mean, we just spent a weekend in Palm Springs together, and let's just say, well, I did my best. Uh, I was, I was like, I would compare myself to Taz. That's yeah, what I would compare myself to. Well, you actually made the wise decision of leaving early. I stayed for even just the four hours extra that I stayed were. Um, we're not advised. Um, but here I am, everyone, barely hanging on. Um, what sort of got me through to this point was the promise of this episode because, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we share this as like a, it's it's in my, it's I think it's in my top one, but it's got to be in your top 10. It's in my top five. Yeah. And it's, I think the, it's, it's definitely the most recent movie that would be in my t- highest echelon. Right. Definitely nothing afterwards. Like even Carol, that's a top 10 movie. Sure, me, sure, sure. Clueless is top five. So is the recency of Carol sort of keeping it out of the top five? Just because we're not ready? I, be, well, I'm one of those people who hates when you go back to school and everybody in a get-to-know-you game says their favorite movie and half the class says a movie that came out two weeks ago. The Shape of Water. Right, et cetera. <laughs> imagine, imagine half the class saying they love The Shape of Water. But anyway, <laughs> no, but I remember in college, we came back, I was an RA, mm-hmm. and people were talking about their favorite movie and at least three people said Transformers yeah. and I realized, this is like my get out. I, yeah. I need to get... <laughs> I need to leave. I was an RA too, and actually one of my one of my famous programs was I would do like um, as the Oscar season was ramping up, I would sort of screen every movie, and I think I was an RA around. I, I just remember really doing a just really successful screening of the kids are all right, mm. and everyone really my my NYU floor of I think like directors really appreciated that Cholodenko uh, effort. Oh, yeah. yeah. You started a craze for Mia Wasikowska that <laughs> lives on to this day. <laughs> Does it? Um, listen, uh, but to, to sort of uh, go from that blonde to this one, um, Clueless, I think it was a few years ago, speaking of Palm Springs, we were there again, and we, we had gotten back to the house, and we put it on, and what a crowd pleaser for gay men. I mean, truly, oh just really hits something I-, I can't really describe. And I would just like to visit uh, the year 1995. Um, I believe I'm five years old. You must be seven or eight, famously, just a, just just a, just a few years older than me there. 
and always will be. Between eight and nine. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. Um, but I just remember seeing Alicia Silverstone and something happening. Do you remember the moment that you saw the image that was Cher Horowitz? And what did it do to you? I remember very vividly being in a VHS store yep. where, where you rent the movie. And the cover of the movie is her and Brittany Murphy and Stacey Dash. Yes. And they're in very provocative, ladylike, kind of mannequin-esque poses. Yes. And I remember the word sex was on the mm-hmm. box. And I remember thinking, I need to see whatever the hell this is. 100%. Something is salacious about this. Sex, clothes, popularity, whatever. Yes. And I think I had just learned to read. So here I am reading, seeing these four words and being like, I don't know what this is, but I need to know everything. And then I also think this is like a real period where the trailer culture was really popping off. I think that I saw her sort of in her Jean-Paul Gaultier sort of yellow plaid look. We have the iconic um, sort of moment where she gets groped, pushes a man away and says two words as if. And I thought, I don't know really what the hell is happening here, but I know that attitude wise, aesthetically, I'm 100 percent in. This is, I think, my first ever stumbling upon of a gay icon. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, I had a weird stigma about this movie for years, and it took me a long time to actually see it because I have an older brother who has a very... I'll say Soundgarden vibe. My brother uh-huh. Jim has like longish hair. He had like a labrette piercing for a while. He just looks like somebody who like was a roadie for Pearl Jam sure, or sure, something. Sure. He saw the movie and he said, there's only one funny part and it's when the old woman flicks them off in the car. And for years I thought, oh, it's like a failed movie. But then I realized I was getting cues on gay canon from this guy who really is a, a real life Paul Rudd character from Clueless. Yeah, he didn't like it because the movie itself dragged him probably pretty accurately and thoroughly. I Down to that shirt. Yeah. Truly, he was wearing the Josh shirt every day in one color. Yeah. Somebody mentioned the other day, because this this isn't a movie that's still like memefied today. I mean, this is this is another thing about it is it still has a place in the cultural lexicon in like a topical way. I feel like it gets referenced often. And I believe I just was scrolling through Instagram stories as as I want to do. And someone had screen grabbed the Paul Rudd character, Josh. And it's the scene where he's reading Nietzsche by the pool and wearing Ray-Bans. And someone was like, it's something about the choice to have him be doing both of these things at the same time that is so perfect for the character and this movie and its examination on the whole, uh, you know, populace. Yeah. Well, there's something just amazing about that character where the minute he almost is forced to own the pretension. He gets really cute. Like he has just a really winning quality that gives in right when you're about to be like, this is such a douchebag, you know? Yeah. And Paul Rudd's film debut. And I think that that actually got lost for me because I thought, you know, it can't, that can't possibly be true. But, and then I, I did some research on this. Apparently he shot (laughs) truly Halloween six, like return of Michael Myers Mm -hmm. or whatever the fuck. And it was before this. And then he shot clueless and this movie came out first, probably a good thing. Oh, I would say for his legacy. I mean, well, he still has a legacy and he's still thriving. So I would assume it is good for him. Yes. (laughs) And he is MCU, which we which I forgive him for. And maybe you're working on it. (laughs) I I don't know how to sit in a theater and watch them. So I do have a problem with those. (laughs) So to revisit the film in which uh, why we're here, um, you know what I actually was kind of surprised about in my research for, for this episode 
the costume budget for this was actually quite low. For a big-budget movie, I didn't know this, but uh, Mona May is the name of the costume designer who who really, I mean, nailed it with this movie because, I mean, just in terms of every single character, even if they are in, like, 12 different looks each, they each have, like, an aesthetic staple. I mean, I think for Dion, obviously, it's that sort of plastic-looking hat she comes out in in the first, and that was sort of, like, red and black and white plaid number. Of course, we have Alicia Silverstone and that iconic Jean-Paul Gaultier yellow plaid look. But the costume budget for this was under $200,000, which actually, to me felt crazy because it's it feels like they're all in designer you know these are Beverly Hills kids but really they were all in pretty thrifty stuff which i thought was interesting that is shocking because everybody is basically a superhero version of a rich high schooler right. in this movie like every color is just primary red or like hard black yes. or like lacquerish looking white uh, and i also love about that Dion look that it manages to be great, even though Cher is supposed to drag her for it a little bit initially, too. Yeah, like it's yeah, still yeah. iconic, still fabulous, even though she's like, no one would ever wear that. Like, the movie gets to be a little bit meta about the costumes at right, one point. You right, know? And that's, I guess, what sort of makes it fashion. Right. Um, curious if you have watched um, the, the Britney Murphy HBO Max documentary yet. No. What I always say about Britney Murphy is I think she would have done well in what we're, you know, popularly deeming the golden age of television. I think she would have Mm. gotten a series that she would have handled quite well. I think she was rather dramatically capable, as we would see. I think she was, you know, singular in a way that I think a television role that would have matched her would have would have would have it would have been really interesting i think it would have been nice to see her in like a handmaid's tale type i literally gonna say i can picture her in the handmaid's tale yeah the same thing it feels that feels right to me i think she would have been paired with a dark comedy that would have suited her because there is something about her that i feel like like i don't see that she's been market corrected even you know what I mean? Like, I don't mm. see that someone kind of swept in and was like, oh, that's the Brittany Murphy now. You know, maybe she's sort of this, maybe Emma Stone is like a more movie star-ish version of what she was. But I'm, it's like a Lindsay Lohan, Brittany Murphy com- tornado that spit out Emma Stone, maybe. But we don't yeah. really have a Brittany Murphy. Yeah, who's like the, like, I think the signature thing about Brittany Murphy, and obviously she was in dramatic roles too, is there's just a little bit of a quirky ebullience about her, like a real, like, a zeal, and I don't know that our actresses are popping with that kind of giddy quality anymore, you know? No. There's a more generalized, uh, likable, affable thing. Yeah, I, if I always bring it down to her very easy laugh like even in that scene i think one of the one of the funniest scenes in the movie is uh when sh- they're doing buns of steel at the house and they sit down and they they have their reading assignments and josh comes in and and alicia's like um you know i want to do something good for the world and he says uh, what about sterilization and Brittany murphy just kind of lets this laugh out that's like you you can't really just do it you know it's 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 yeah. it's very charming it's, she's very natural on camera and you know it's a couple iconic lines in this from her i mean so when to answer your question i would give the second best performance to her yeah i think I know in reviewing the movie, I may agree with you. I actually was going to say, my friend Andy says Dan Hedaya, who plays her dad. Genius. But I actually, the way he says the line, you think the death of Sammy Davis left an opening in the The rap pack, pack. that is drop dead funny. But I feel like maybe he's a little bit too one note. I mean, the character is one note. So I can't say he's the best in the movie. For me, it's either Brittany or Stacey Dash because 
something about Stacey Dash matches Cher in a way that is so surprising. You know, she's totally pleased as Punch to be the second fiddle. It's it's so it's, yes, yeah. The character is like so um, comfortable playing the role that she plays, and it doesn't feel like we don't know the character. It feels like that's just the best friend. She's got her own inner life, her own thing going on. You know, one of the first like major subplots we even see in the movie is 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 um, her relationship. So it, it she's realized totally. And Cher says regarding marijuana consumption. Mm. It is quite another to be fried all day. And Dion, not skipping a beat, goes, do you see the distinction? Do you see the like, distinction? Like, they're the same mode. It's like a, all the voices in the Greek chorus are totally unified. You yeah, know? It's, it is um, it is a set spike situation in a major way. Yeah. Also, I, I think that when we, because fr- it might have been a couple years, actually. I've, I've since, since that Palm Springs trip we took a couple years ago where I I felt like we were finding so many lines I had never heard before. It's one of those movies. Which, by the way, is specific to this movie. It's a short movie. It is 90 minutes. And yet every time I watch it, there's a line I didn't remember was that hilarious, like a 10. Yeah. I mean, in particular, I'm thinking of, it's the scene where they are, and this is a great Stacey Dash scene. um, It's the scene where they are in phys ed and they're getting ready to each hit like a tennis ball each. And um, the 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 PE teacher says Miss Stoger, which I love the last just the last name <laughs> Geist Stoger. Like I mean, really good work here from Amy Heckerling, the writer and director. Um, but they say, she says Dion, you're up, and she goes, I have a note from my tennis instructor, and he would prefer it if I didn't expose myself to any uh, instruction that might derail his teachings. <laughs> As in, she's too good at tennis, is what she's claiming, <laughs> which I also don't believe. You know, I'm on track to start in, uh, over here, you know. That might derail his teachings. Like, he's like a, a karate teacher or something. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, iconically, we have a, the There Goes Your Social Life, which I... It's so funny because I think it might be outside of You're a Virgin Who Can't Drive and, sh- and small toss-offs like As If, etc. Um, I think that, well, There Goes Your Social Life probably is the most famous line from the movie, but in a rewatch, maybe it's just one of those things where we're just so used to the line, but it doesn't hit me as hard as everything else. No, because also it's pretty obvious, like balls yeah. flying at your face. Like, of course, you would make a line about around that nature, you know, afterwards. Yeah. Maybe it was at you for the time. You just brought up um, it's a joke at Amber's expense. And one of my favorite things about this movie is that like they are constantly either making fun of Amber or Amber's making fun of Cher. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a rivalry there. But because <laughs> they're sort of in the same cultural click yeah they still sit together at lunch and i love that like the people you make fun of the most are still somehow the closest to you you yeah i feel like there's like a um territorial like uh respect between them and that's where it gets very austin to me the the book is famously loosely based on emma by jane austen and that's actually where i think it 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 feels most austin-esque if you will in that it's sort of these two very much socially circling each other and they're they're not making any plays for each other's territory but it's very much a thing of i'm as rich as you i look as good as you i probably spend the same type of money that you do we date the same guys um and but there's not an antagonistic relationship it's simply a circling of each other that i that i actually really like yeah, no, it's like they're colleagues or something in mm-hmm. the same universe as opposed to just friends. And so there's going to be a competitiveness there. Again, like the first 30 minutes of the movie are, is Cher battling back against poor grades. And Amber literally in class is saying, 
this speech she gave totally sucked. Yeah. Like, she is the antagonist in that moment. <laughs> she is the one making this hard for her. You really do. And this actually, you know what's funny about this is in in describing the plot, it's actually quite difficult to say what the storyline is. There is often no story going on, in fact. It's just getting to know Cher, and she's at a party now, and this thing... This bad thing happens, she gets robbed or something, but it's Mm -hmm. not like she's aiming towards anything. You know, a lot of people believe that the A-plot is the romantic storyline between Cher and Josh, which to me, I I always sort of take issue with that because I guess if you're you're thinking of it as a romantic comedy and that's what what we're um, discussing this as, then yes, if you really watch the movie in terms of assessing a screenplay beat by beat as this rolls out, that is the romantic storyline. It just kind of comes out of nowhere because we're not expecting her to end up with her former stepbrother. But I would say that really when when Act 1 sort of pops off is really the introduction of Ty, and I would describe this as a movie where Cher actually, and this is interesting to me, creates her own antagonist in Ty. And Mm -hmm. um, that's actually something I really like about it, is there's not this natural antagonist. Maybe you're even going into it thinking it's going to be Amber because she's this just (laughs) red-haired, like, you know, sarcastic creature in the film who's obviously at odds with Cher. But she's really a non-factor in the movie. Cher ends up creating her successes and failures in a way that I think is just really strong in like a character study way. Yeah. Also, I mean, I would say the relationship with Josh reminds me a little bit of when Harry met Sally in that Mm. the movie is about figuring out what their relationship is and it's not necessarily romantic. Right. You know, so once we get to it being romantic at the end, maybe then people mistake it for it being a rom-com. But honestly, that's more just a twist than it is, you know, the thread we're following throughout the movie. Does it bother you that she ends up with her brother figure? Because this is something that I think and I'll give my opinion. I'll hold my opinion back. But um, I, I always find it's interesting that people are like, "Ugh!" When she ends up with her brother, what is your what is your um, thought on this? Well, at the beginning of the movie, it's not like they know each other even very well. Mm. Like she's getting acquainted with his personality when he ends up picking her up with his girlfriend. Uh, yeah. After she gets robbed, she chimes up about her knowledge of Hamlet that surprises him in yeah, a way. Yeah. So it's like, I think there's still a kind of meet cute vibe of everything about them throughout the movie. And they're sort of placed together in this house. Like they don't belong in that house together by any means. So it doesn't bother me that much. That said, I've seen this movie 50,000 times and maybe, I, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. They're not related. They were barely yeah. even like sibling figures. But I I personally don't have a a problem with the movie. I will say, um, I think, you know, me being as young as I was when I first saw this, I think I was seven or eight. My sister was four or five. And I put in Clueless because I had snuck it past my mother. And I don't think we got a single joke, including Mm. the fact that Christian was gay. I know that we loved the movie and watched it again and again and again on repeat without understanding it. I think it was just visually appealing for us. But I don't think it was until I had seen it like much later that I maybe I didn't know what gay was, uh, ironically enough. But it didn't hit me that he was a homosexual because there there is so much like fun language around it, like the friend of Dorothy, etc. They do explicitly say he's gay, but the way that they tackle his homosexuality, I think is actually kind of, you know, ahead of its time time and subtle and smart right uh occasionally in somebody's grinder profile you'll see 
Murray's long explanation of uh, gay euphemism. Streisand ticket holding. Yes. Yeah. But my favorite part is when he goes, he's gay. He's he's gay. <laughs> it really is good. Donald Faison also, another, just the launching of so many careers, including his. And again, like, it really hit me like a ton of bricks in watching the movie when I, I think maybe when it was like after I had been slammed with my own homosexuality <laughs> and when I was 11, then watching the movie again, just how gay he is at that party. Right. Like, Hagsville. <laughs> But also, it, it kind of takes a second viewing to realize, oh, he's checking out a guy. Just look how he ignores every other girl. <laughs> yes. And then also, like, it, I mean, they really lay it on thick when he wants to come over and watch specifically Tony Curtis movies. Yeah. Like, the, the more effeminate, uh, somehow an even more effeminate Rock Hudson. And Tony Curtis was not even gay, so. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think it's it's so interesting. Like, he he really is this sort of refined... <laughs> Like, yeah, I also the Billy Holiday of it all. Do we like Billy Holiday? I love him. Right. Et cetera. <laughs> that whole thing. His old classic car. The the fact that the dad still can't stand him. I like too. it's just like even though it's like pretty much clear as day. <laughs> like you can tell he's like conjuring the machismo mm-hmm. and he knows it's time to step in in a gallant way. Yes. But it's still gay. You know, I actually do appreciate the fact that they give the gay character that sort of heroic moment. I, not that I need that from my gay characters. I would have totally loved it too if he honestly pushed Cher in front of him and was like, do something. I would have also recognized that. But I do think like, you know, for a movie in 1995 that's, you know, putting a gay character out there and, you know, it is a roadblock for the protagonist who we like and we have this other character being like, he's gay and like, they're not slurs, but, you know, he's making fun of him. The movie never makes fun of him and I obviously think that that must have to do with like the fact that it's a female writer and director who maybe like, you know, has gay friends or is around gay people. But for a movie in 1995, it's not homophobic, which is huge. (laughs) Right. Well, also, there's a specific moment that reacquaints me with the fact that a woman wrote and directed it, which is during the part when Cher's going through all the reasons she appreciates her friends. And she starts with Christian Mm -hmm. and they're looking at art together and share the look on her face is just, I have no idea (laughs) what this is, what the sculpture is. And he's doing his like artist (laughs) hands around it. And she goes, he thinks everything should be beautiful and interesting, which I think is a particular kind of observation about uh, a gay ass teat. Yes. That only a woman or a gay man could make. Yeah. Particularly in the nineties. I'm just thinking about art in the movie too now. And I'm thinking it's just like, the one thing I always kind of miss and or that I always hits me is like in the very beginning of the movie when she's walking into her mansion home and she there's that huge picture of her mother she died a routine uh, liposuction an ac- a fluke accident <laughs> during a routine liposuction like her mother is dead because of liposuction yeah. <laughs> No, the movie like really slides in super arch moments. There's a moment when she goes, oh, if you cut it like this, you lose calories. What? I mean, that is mm. so broad. Oh, yeah. That's another one of those moments that you miss. And then, well, and you do it like this and you burn calories. And I'm like, is that an improvisation? Like, what is this? It almost feels like right. something else. Because <laughs> she mutters it almost under her breath, too. So I was wondering if it was even in the script. And there's this, like, real confusion on Stacey Dash's face, who, by the way, was 29 when she shot this. Right. And also, I mean, everybody in the movie sort of looks like they're in their mid to late 20s anyway, but... Yeah, I guess I'm not surprised by that ultimately. I think I think um, the main character is kind of the only one playing a real age. I mean, Alicia Silverstone, I think, was actually young. 
Um, I'm also now being reminded of, like, we, we spoke about Dan Hedaya earlier, and now I'm thinking maybe he is, like, top three or four in the movie for me because <laughs> when she's like, well, you know, my, my teachers were trying to lowball me, Daddy, so I'm just going to convince them, and he just goes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> also, right, he, like, fishes the reason why her grades are suddenly so good out of her, and he, he goes through a bunch of noble reasons and then ends up with, oh, you argued for it. That's why I'm proud of you. Yes. The one ignoble reason yeah Yeah. honestly in in the in the grand scheme like let's talk about alicia for for a second because after this movie comes out she gets like this huge deal where she's kind of the biggest new rising star and she decides to do the movie excess baggage did you ever see the movie excess baggage with i believe benicio del toro right Correct. I remember being very excited for it at the time because I was so into her, even though I hadn't seen Clueless yet. There was just something so winning about her, period. Yeah. I think it was the thickness of her blonde hair. I, I always I always was like, what's the deal with her hair, the way it shines in the light? I was and and just the general way in which she carried herself. But that's a movie I missed. And I almost feel like, am I part of the problem? Like, I'm one of the gays that didn't follow her to excess baggage. Oh, well, well, I mean, like, then a bunch of us did follow her to Batman and Robin. And I'm still there. Right. <laughs> right. We forgot to pick you up. Yeah. Did you ever watch Mismatch? No. Golden Globe nominee. <laughs> right. Mean, also, years later, I remember, um, what did she do, Alicia? I mean, I remember seeing Book Club, and I'm like, why is she one of the sisters in Book Club? Like, we are wasting Alicia Silverstone here. It genuinely feels like that. And I almost think, like, we are due for that, like, you know, army of gay men to really do something for her. I know she's doing Babysitter's Club right now, but where is the starring vehicle? Well, specifically about Book Club, those kids were demented in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was accidentally they were psychotic. They were supposed to be mildly antagonistic, but it was so shockingly wrong. We need to do better for Alicia Silverstone. Like, you watch Clueless again, and honestly, this is one of those things, and I sort of check myself when I say this, but I do believe it. When it comes to, like, Oscar nominations, I just want Mm -hmm. a singular thing. I want to ask myself, could anyone else have done it? And you actually look at the list of people that auditioned for Cher, and I, I would imagine the closest person to booking this that wasn't Alicia was probably Reese Witherspoon, who then in a few years' time gets Elle Woods. And I also feel like that's like a particular actress and star combination that really couldn't be duplicated. But looking back at this, and you probably know the answer, but that year, 95, would you give Alicia Silverstone an Oscar nomination in a world where the Oscars appreciate comedy? Well, yes. I mean, it would be it would look so good in retrospect for the Academy because right? it stands out among the types of things they tend to reward. Not only are there not many comedies, but like a really brassy, like singular, like her whole thing is she has an amazing personality. Right. And I think that would be unusual for an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Um, that year she would have been up against, yeah, Elizabeth Shue and Leaving Las Vegas. Was that Dead Man Walking? Was that Susan Sarandon? Dead year? Man Walking, yeah. That's who won that year. Uh, Sharon Stone. Right. And, uh, uh, Emma Thompson in uh, Sense and Sensibility. So it's not like it's a, it's a weak year or anything, but come on. I mean, not only is Cher quotable in this movie, but like her every glance is so entrancing. I think something that they probably couldn't have even written into the movie are like the looks on Cher's face when she sees her successful manipulation, really, of Miss Geist and uh, Wallace Shawn. Yeah. Like when she's watching them kiss, it really is her selfishly getting what she wants, but she's also living for the moment she's created in a sort of 
um, charitable way. Yeah. You know? And I feel like you can't write that expression on her face. No. That's the thing she adds that's so X Factor in addition to, of course, every line reading. You have to imagine that the auditions for this movie probably were popular looking girl giving bitchy take after bitchy take after bitchy take and there is a winningness and a natural charm to her and even even if you know as as Josh says in the movie I'm sure this all suits your needs more than anyone else's even if that is empirically true you're still on her side and rooting for her and this is also credit to Stacey Dash's performance as well because they are peas in a pod in a lot of those scenes and they don't feel mean in fact it's a walk that's tough to do to be most popular girls in school and you don't feel mean. And Cher is only charming and afloat the entire movie. She's never utterly devastated. And even when she has her low moments, it's still played comically. Right. You know, it's still like a whiny sort of you're still laughing You're at her at that point when she's just that bad at driving. Also, you have to, I mean, just for her to be a bad driver is just such a good pull. I mean, <laughs> to not be able to drive is just like, yeah, that is a true obstacle for for someone that age. But you know what I love about this movie is it really is, and I think maybe this is where, and I love Juno, and and, and it's, it's such a different movie because this is a hard comedy. This yeah. is one of those, you look at like a script like 30 Rock or really anything like Tina Fey does, and it's like, you know, pretty much the rule there is there's a joke in every line. There's a joke in almost every single line of this movie. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's almost like, like she's a real joke writer, Amy Heckerling. And I know there was a ton of research that went into the film, and a lot of it is atmospheric, and a lot of it is you know, based in tone, but there's also hard jokes throughout. I mean, we were both named after famous singers of the past who now do infomercials. Like, no one's going to say that. That's a joke. Like, this is a hard comedy. That is, first of all, the fact that they can play off that character fact and that line and just move right along is exactly why this movie is good. Yeah. Because that is among the most insane things you will ever read in a script. You know, imagine that being in any other comedy. You'd be like, all right, that's trying really hard. You know, here it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels effortless and exactly in line with who those people are. Weirdly, one of my best friends is this guy named Andrew Colon, who works at a commercial agency in Mm -hmm. LA. And one of his first jobs was he worked for Amy Heckerling. And he was like a young gay guy at the time in his like mid twenties. And one time he comes up to her on the set of Clueless and goes, puts his two thumbs together and hands out and goes, whatever, with the, the W that Amber does in the movie. And Amy Heckerling goes, what is that? Yeah. She was she was like a sponge for that. She wanted to know what young people were doing. Yes. She's like, we can build on that. So I think Amy Heckerling also just had her ears out to the world in a really specific way where she was just like, you know, because this isn't her generation. No. You know, this is somebody who directed um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High 14 years before. Yeah. Um, she was just ready and able to like take something that was very of that moment, be like, we can play with this. That's a real skill, too, as a director and a writer, is being able to not only emulate what's happening in youth culture, but really understand it. I often think about, you know, who's going to write the next great teen comedy, because I think that we we could say that, you know, the spiritual successor in the aughts to this movie is obviously Mean Girls, and obviously its predecessor is Heathers. Um, And so, really, we haven't really seen... Maybe it's because the monoculture is less of a thing right now, but we haven't really seen this movie succeeded in that way. I would throw out Booksmart as something that comes close um, because mm-hmm. it does feel like it is 
commenting on a time. But I would also submit that those characters as leads are so specific that it keeps it from being a real examination on high school as a whole. Whereas even though this is set in Beverly Hills and even though Mean Girls sort of is what it is, I just feel like those feel like we're really speaking to a time. Whereas I haven't seen that done yet. And I often think to myself, like, how do you go about understanding Gen Z well enough to create the high school movie of now. Like, they're so foreign to me. What's also interesting is, like, I understand that Mean Girls and and Booksmart, to a certain extent, are successors to this movie. But something that really sets them apart and a rung lower for me Mm -hmm. is that the heroines are self-deprecating. Right. Like, like, there's, like, an... So true. There's an active um, relatability gambit they're doing, mm-hmm. I think. You know, like, you know, Katie's like a good person, ultimately. Yeah. And the the girls in Booksmart, even though, you know, like in Clueless, the ride of the movie is their personalities. Like, that's what's like really like, but I'm a mess. Yeah. And Cher, even though she is clueless as in some certain ways, as the movie keeps pointing out. Yeah. Not for a second is she like. Oh, but, you know, I'm just one of the girls. You know, little, like, she's not shrinking. Like, there's something distinctly Madonna about Cher. Right. You know, just, like, embracing all of the complexities and being like, they're all great. Why do you think it is? Because especially in this reboot and remake culture, and I know this has been attempted many times, why do you think it is that it feels like this is one that eludes uh, recreation in a way? God, I mean, I, I just think the number one signature thing that this movie accomplishes that almost nothing else does is the combination of writerly dialogue mm-hmm. recited by people who don't feel like they've ever read it. Like it really is occurring naturally. Yes. I think I really think that's the combination because there's there's a musicality to the way everything is written in this movie, but never for a moment do I feel like they're reading sheet music. That's right. all I can say is that it's so natural while also being so heightened. That yeah. weird mix is where the like genius lies. I also can't help but feel like if you really asked people what they loved about this movie, I think number one, people would say Alicia Silverstone. I think people might mention the clothes. And that's when it starts to become clear and that once you get into like the the dialogue and the the manner of speaking, it is a period piece now. And Mm -hmm. that is what we love about it. I mean, the movie is so drenched in 90s L.A. Beverly Hills rich culture that it is now far away. So I think if they were going to try to recreate it, I don't know if going modern with it is the right thing because this doesn't exist anymore. This is bottle to me like this. If you were going to recreate Clueless, I would almost say do 1994. Do 1990, do do when it was shot, because maybe that's what it is that we all love and respond to, honestly. What's interesting, I think, also in this movie, I'll stop saying what's interesting, even though it really is all interesting to me, is that the movie comments on the 90s and 90s fashion and, you know, grunge and uh, alternativeness. Yeah. And I feel like it's this combination of very of its time and also very timeless. Yes. In that way, specifically in how it's written. You know, the look of it is very 90s and occasionally you get, you know, the comment on, oh, you th- that guy looks like he just walked out of bed with his like baggy pants and stuff, yes. which is obviously a 90s phenomenon. But otherwise, you're forgetting that this is still based on Emma. 
Yes. So there are lots of universal elements at play. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny because obviously Joel Kim Booster um, wrote Fire Island, which is an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And while we were shooting it, I was actually excited because I was like, this feels like it has a clueless in tone type situation happening and I'm like that's mm-hmm. just Austin. I mean like th- her work is so exciting even now because the the mapping that you can do onto social situations. I mean she was speaking to her time obviously, but really she was speaking to people and the way that they act. And I think that's really the strength of this movie is it's about people, you know, trying to get what they want and ultimately like she picked an extremely fun, you know, very ripe situation to explore, but ultimately I- it's it's about these characters in a way that is fun to watch every single time. I mean, it's just a blast. Right. It's almost like they get to be so savvy because their ambitions are so simplistic. Right. You know, like within this very narrow universe of, you know, this high school social status thing, you can really master it. Yeah. But it does mean you are completely un- unaware about tons of other things, too. Yeah. And I like that. I Also, like, it's it's one of those things where it's like, this is where I always say, like, as a writer, never fear justification because it can be used as a joke. When Brittany Murphy says, and it's almost like her calling up the script, she goes, wow, you guys talk like grown-ups. Yes. And they go, well, this is a really this good school. This is a school. really good school. <laughs> Great line. Great. Like, as if they have learned anything after we have established she scams her teachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No shit. You guys have coke here? Well, yeah, this is America. I mean, it's like <laughs> it works on so many levels. It's also, you know, really ahead of its time. And or, or really, you know what she was said? We have to make sure that this is here and we have to make sure this is present because there's something to this in terms of how plugged in the characters are at all times. You know, it's the first movie where I think we see the characters really attached to their cell phones in a way that was obviously watershed for the rest of, you know, teen popular culture going forward to the point where now I think it's actually to the detriment of the youth. I don't think they look anyone in the eye, which again also makes me nervous for whatever the take is on youth culture in high school now, because is it going to be dark? Yeah, it almost necessarily has to be dark. Yeah, there has to be some Black Mirror element at play. A hundred percent. And um, happy we could end on that dark ass note. <laughs> um, but no, take this dystopian idea with you as you proceed through your day. Um, anyway, if you want more of all of this, you have to listen to Keep It if you're not already. I mean, just one of the best pop culture podcasts out there. If you don't know now, you know. And um, you got to follow Louis Vertel wherever he does an, a damn thing. And I thank you so much for coming on this episode. Oh, it's, I mean, you're one of my besties. Always a pleasure to talk to you, period. And and just about Clueless. If we just reserve the next five conversations for Clueless, I'd be okay with that, too. And who's to say we haven't already? Um, Everyone, Louis right. <laughs> Vertel, thank you so much. HBO Max Movie Club is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Matt Rogers. It's executive produced by Ethan Fixell, produced by Camila Salazar, researched by Steve Griffin, and engineered, edited, and mixed by Matt Stillo. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed HBO Max Movie Club, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might get your podcasts. Thanks for checking out the HBO Max Movie Club. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HBO Max Movies. King Richard is available in theaters and on HBO Max in the U.S. only for 31 days from theatrical release. 
You can also watch Clueless on HBO via HBO Max until May 31st, 2022.